I hope you like worshiping together, because we're going to be doing that for all eternity. We get a little taste of it here and now, where our prayers and our lives rise like incense, like perfume, before this great God who's given us all things through his Son. I love singing about his love for us, his care for us, and to know that that just didn't happen by accident. That happened because he sent his Son. And he can love us the way he does love us, because we're in Christ. And so praise be to him, praise be to his Son. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to finish uh, this first section of 1 Corinthians together. We're going to talk about the good life. You know, I've seen a lot of vacation pictures recently. Uh, people have gone to Hawaii and Mexico and all these great places, and I've got to be honest, I'm getting a little jelly uh, of all these great vacations that people have. Sitting on the beach, you know, they got their Mai Tais, their pina coladas, whatever it is. Uh, maybe getting that, you know, beachside massage, you know, whatever, you know, s suits you. You know, we all have ideas of what the good life is, right? For some of us, it was maybe the white picket fence and, you know, the corporate job, having all the needs that we have, having a boat that I can go out on the weekends, uh, maybe if we grew up in a rougher part of the area, maybe it was just getting all the money and guns and women and everything else that I could get. Uh, for a lot of us, maybe it's getting the respect and a good reputation among men. We all have this idea of what the good life is. And usually it involves three things. The first is this. We think the good life is being in authority or having power, that that's the good life. And we think that the good life is that you have people that serve you that you don't have to serve anyone, that people serve you. And that the good life involves being surrounded by people who are going to tell you all the wonderful things that you are. That's usually our idea of the good life. But I think Christ has a very different picture of what the good life is on this earth. And it doesn't involve being in authority, it actually involves being under authority. It doesn't involve being served, but serving and it doesn't involve being praised by men. It actually involves having people who love you enough to tell you the hard things about yourself and not just praise you for the good things. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in this last section of uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll look at it together. Father, we, we do want to live the good life. I don't think there's anything wrong with that desire to live the good life, to have joy to have purpose, to have meaning. But Lord, we often get confused as to what's really going to contribute to the good life. What does the good life look like? We confess that many times it means that we get to call the shots, that people do what we say, and that people praise us for how wonderful we are. But if we look at Christ, that wasn't the life that he lived. He didn't see himself in position of authority. He actually put himself under your authority. He didn't come demanding that he would be served, but he actually came to serve, even to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. And he wasn't just someone that would go around and tell people the wonderful things about them. He'd actually love them enough to tell them the hard things about them. That's the good life. And that's the life that you've called us to live. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness because we still get it so confused sometimes. We think we'll be happier if we have respect and honor in this world. We think we'll be happier if we are served rather than serving. We think we'll be happier if we're in authority rather than under your authority. 
So Lord, would you do a work in our hearts this morning? Would you humble us? The root of all of our ideas of the good life tend to be pride. That we're the best, that we're the most significant, that everything revolves around us. But the good life is a life of humility and love, of dying to self, of seeking others' interests above our own. That's the way that Christ lived his life. And he said that he had fullness of joy as he did that. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. And so may we follow in his steps. He's our example, not only our Savior, but also our example. And he calls us to live like him. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. So may we do that, and may we do that with joy, not begrudgingly, but may we see beauty in his service, beauty in his sacrifice, to where we'd want to live like that too. And pray this in Christ's name, amen. So the good life. First, if you want to live the good life, you need to put yourself under the word of God. Again, we think the good life is, I'm in authority. But no, no, no. Christ is going to tell us, no, the good life is actually being under God's good authority. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So if you want to enjoy the good life, what do you do? Don't go beyond what is written. Paul says in verse 6, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. What things is he talking about? He's talking about verses 1 to 5, which Larry preached on last week. Paul's talking about how do I and Apollos, how do we view ourselves as apostles in Christ? You might hear how Paul describes his ministry and his life, and you might think, well, who cares? What does that have to do with me? You might have heard Larry's sermon last week about leaders and people in the church that are leading and teaching and preaching. You think, well, what does that have to do with me? Who cares? Paul says that has everything to do with you. The reason I'm talking about me is actually for your benefit. I'm not just sort of, you know, talking about my life, sharing my life story with you. I'm doing it for you. He says, I'm in Apollos. We're apostles. I mean, we're not just any teachers or preachers. We're apostles. We're not just any pastor or shepherd. We were hand-selected by Jesus to be the foundation of the church along with the prophets, right? Ephesians 2, the apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation of the church. And so Paul's saying, how how do we think of ourselves? The ones that are the foundation of the church, how do we think about ourselves? We think about ourselves this way. We are servants of Christ. And we are stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. He said he's a servant, right? Larry talked about that last week. He's the under rower. He's at the bottom of the boat. He doesn't get to see the light of day, but he's just happy to have an oar in his hand rowing along wherever Christ is directing him. That's how I think about myself. Even though I'm hand-selected by Jesus, I think I'm just happy to have an oar in my hand. And Paul's saying, if that's how I think of myself, how much more should you think of yourself that way? I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I don't come up with the word of God. 
I'm not an originator, I'm not a creator, and I'm certainly not a modifier of the Word of God. All I want to do, I'm like a waiter. I just want to bring the beautiful, wonderful things that God has prepared and bring it to you. I'm not changing it. I'm not tweaking it. I'm not adjusting the recipe on the way. I just want to give it to you the way that God made it. And if I'm an apostle and I think that way, how much more should you? What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, if, if he's a servant, if all he wants to do is be on the boat, why are we fighting about who's the most important one on the boat? If he's a steward, I'm not the chef. If all he wants to do is carry and preserve the message faithfully, why are we so quick to discard it, modify it, go beyond it? He's a servant. He's a steward. And I'm telling you this for your benefit so that you might think the same way, that you would think of yourself as a servant and a steward. And now those are very countercultural ideas. They were countercultural in the time when Paul was writing this. They are certainly countercultural today. I'm a servant? No, 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 no. I deserve to be served, right? I don't deserve, you know, to have to do anything for somebody else. A steward? I'm, I've got original and creative ideas. I have smarts. I have intellect that needs to be shared with the world. A steward that I just carry somebody else's message? No, 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 no. So what does this have to do with you? It has everything to do with you. You're a servant. You're a steward. And those are the two ideas that Paul's going to unpack as he finishes chapter 4. The first thing he's going to see is you need to think of yourself as a steward and not go beyond what is written. You have a stewardship of the word of God. Look what he says, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. For what purpose? So that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That you would look at our lives as apostles and you would see we don't dare go beyond what is written and that you would learn to do the same thing. Interesting that he says that you'd have to learn that. What does that mean? It means that sort of naturally we want to go beyond what is written. And we have to learn to not do that. Right? That's the essence of sin. I'm going to go beyond what God has said. That was the nature of Satan's temptation to Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat from that? You're not going to die like, yeah, I know God said that, but there's no way that you're going to die. Just go beyond what he said. You know what's right. You know what's good. And I think sometimes when we get saved, we almost think that way even more. Oh, I have a new heart. I have the mind of Christ. I've got all life figured out now. I'm going to do what I want to do. But he says, no, we have to learn to not go beyond what is written. The wisdom of God is eternal. It has always existed, it will always exist, and it'll never change. I mean, I'm a guy who loves coffee. I drink at least two cups a day, and you know, there's always these news reports that come out every few months, like, oh, coffee's bad for you, you know, don't drink it, it's gonna do X, Y, Z, and so I'm like, okay, I try to ignore those. And then a few months later, a report will come out, actually, coffee's good for you. It's good for your heart. Drink four cups a day. I'm like, okay, I'm going to bookmark that, and I'm going to save that one. 
Or you know, years ago it was eggs, right? Eggs, bad for you, high cholesterol, don't eat eggs. But then a few years later, it's like, oh no, eggs are fine, you know, eat them. That's the wisdom of the world. It changes. Do this, okay, don't do that anymore. How about this? No, we'll do this instead. But God's wisdom isn't like that. It doesn't change. It's always been the same. It will always be the same. So we need to learn not to go beyond what God has written. Now, there's several ways that we go beyond what is written. The first is the most obvious. We just blatantly sin. We basically say, God's wisdom, eh, that's kind of old-fashioned. You know, I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for me. I'm going to be in heaven for all eternity. But all that stuff like don't have sex before marriage, don't get drunk, turn the other cheek, like, I mean, that's, I don't really need to listen to that, right? I mean, I want my sins forgiven, but I also want to sleep with my girlfriend. Did God really say that I'm not supposed to do that? I think I'm a little smarter than God. And there's just blatantly sin, that we just go beyond what is written, and we don't care. But there's also going beyond what is written when we think that we're holier than God. You wear that to church? You still shop at Target? Didn't you know good Christians boycott those kinds of stores? This is what Eve did, right? When Eve thought about what was God's command, she added to it. She said that I wouldn't eat it or touch it, but God never said you can't touch it. They could have played catch with the forbidden fruit. But she added to it. She became holier than God, and we do the same thing. Where God's word, yeah, it's fine as far as it goes, but I think we can do even a little better, bit better. Others go beyond God's word by thinking that they're more compassionate than Jesus. That God's wisdom isn't inclusive or progressive enough. Gender differences, the role of men and women in the home, in the church. I mean, what was written, it worked for them. But we're more advanced in today's society. We understand a little bit more about what's true and what's helpful. And so we go beyond what is written. Now, whether you blatantly sin, claim you're holier than God, or try to be more compassionate than Jesus, what's the root of all of those things? Pride. I know better than God. And Paul says, if you want to live the good life, you don't go beyond what is written, you go under what is written. You don't sit in judgment over the word of God and decide what you want to believe, what I don't want to believe, what I'm going to live by, what I'm not going to live by. No, you put yourself under the word of God. That's the good life. Because God knows better than we do what's good. And Paul is, throughout these first four chapters, like he's hammering away at pride. You need to humble yourself. Let God be God and you be not God. And put yourself under him. That's what he says in verse 6. Look, I've applied these things for your benefit that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. For what reason? so that none of you may be puffed up, proud, in favor of one against another. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I don't want you to go beyond what is written because it's bad and sinful and shame on you. He says, I don't want you to go beyond what is written because it means you're proud. And God can't use a proud church. It says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Anytime you go beyond what is written, it's sin. But even deeper than that, it represents the thought that I know better than God. And you're proud. And a proud heart is catastrophic to being used by God. That's why the antidote to all this is not just humility, but humility that presents itself in love. A proud heart cannot love. Because a proud heart is always going to seek to be served rather than to serve. The reason pride is so catastrophic is that it makes Christ-like love impossible. If you're proud, you will never truly love and serve people. I mean, think about what makes Jesus so remarkable. Philippians 2, it talks about his ministry to us. And it heads off, it puts a banner over everything that he did. The banner over it is, although he existed in the form of God. Now, before I tell you anything else, know that, front and center, he is God. What does that mean? He created everything out of nothing by speaking. He's God. He's deserving of all worship, all glory, all honor. If we saw him, we should just bow down every single person. And it says, although he existed in the form, although he is God, how did Jesus live his life? He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't demand that you treat him like God, even though he is God. He didn't demand that you treat him like God in order to love you and in order to serve you. What did he do? He humbled himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're proud, you'll never do that. You would never even take one step in that direction if you're proud. But if you love your Savior for everything that he did, why would you not want to follow in his steps? The cross is the great pride killer. It kills your pride so that you can love. Throughout this letter, Paul's going to say, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge, what does it do? It puffs up, that same word. It makes you proud. But love builds up. In his great rebuke in chapter 13, when he describes love, he's actually rebuking the Corinthians because they don't do this. But one of the characteristics of love, he says, love is not arrogant, which is the same word. Love's not puffed up. It's not proud. Why is that so important? Because love is one of our greatest witnesses to the world about Jesus. John 13, 35, they'll know you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. You think the world sees anything good about a church that's proud and is fighting amongst themselves about who's the greatest? It's like, I could see that at my house. I could see that at my job. I don't need to come here. But no, we should be a place that loves each other, that's humble, that serves each other. And so Paul wants them to see this. So he asks them these questions, verse 7, to recognize their humble position. It says, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What's he saying? That first question, who sees anything different in you? That's Paul's way of saying, who do you think you are? They, they're the the Corinthians are judging him. Who's Paul? Paul's an apostle. 
Paul, personally selected by Jesus to be the foundation of the church, the Corinthians think, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I like Paul. I kind of like Apollos better. I kind of like Cephas better. Paul's message, eh, I think he could kind of tweak a few things. It would become a lot more palatable to, to the people around here. Paul said, just said, I don't even judge myself. Who judges Paul? God. So who do the Corinthians think they are when they're judging an apostle? God. We know better than God what a church should look like, what God's people should do. He asked him another question. What do you have that you did not receive? You're acting like you had something to do with your salvation and all the gifts that you have. 18 months ago, you were worshiping in a pagan temple. You were adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards. And what happened? Oh, well, we finally decided we were going to mend our ways. You know, I'm going to turn from that lifestyle. I'm going to follow Jesus now. My brilliant intellect figured out the truth of the gospel. And because I'm so smart, these wonderful things happened to me. No! You didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And yet God invaded your life, opened your eyes so that you could actually see how wretched and sinful you are, and then showed you that his dear son came, lived the perfect life in your place, and died on the cross so that you could be reconciled to him. And he saved you, and it had nothing to do with you. You were nobodies. And now you have riches in Christ. And how did you get those things? Did you earn them? No, we just received it. Received it all. And this is like the kids, right? They're, they're bragging to their friends. Not my kids, other people's kids. About like, oh, I got the new Xbox. It's like, oh, you still have the old one? I'm, I got the new one. It's like, you mean the one that you begged mommy and daddy to buy you at Christmas and they gave it to you? Like, you're boasting as though you have something to do with the fact that you have the new Xbox. Like, you had nothing to do with it. Your parents bought it for you. So why are you boasting as though it wasn't just a pure gift of grace? And that's what he's asking the Corinthians. Notice Paul doesn't diminish their gifts. He's not saying, like, yeah, these gifts are meaningless, they're worthless. No, he, they have great gifts. They have prophecy. They speak in tongues. They serve each other. They do all of these different things. Paul doesn't diminish for one second how valuable those gifts are. But he says, you didn't have anything to do with you having them. God just gave them to you. So don't boast as though you earned them from God. We're stewards, right? Stewards of God's word and stewards of God's gifts. We had nothing to do with it. We've simply received them. So let us never think that we're deserving of boasting as though we had something to do with it. So we should put ourselves under the word of God. We're not in authority. The good life is being under authority. We're stewards. We're entrusted with treasure. You know, one part of this is that sometimes we do think that we know better than God what's going to make us happy. If you think that, go to Psalm 8411. You don't have to do it right now, but just write it down. And, G and God says this, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you're desiring something that's beyond the word of God, it's not good for you. 
You might think it's good. Being saved and getting to sleep with my girlfriend, like, that sounds good to me. I want that. It's not good for you. God's not going to withhold something good. If he's telling you something isn't good, it isn't good. Put yourself under his word. Don't go beyond it. It's not going to result in anything good for you. Put yourself under his word. The good life, it's not being in authority, it's being under authority. There's safety, there's confidence, there's humility when you put yourself under the word of God. Don't forsake those things by putting yourself over it. Secondly, if we want to live the good life, we need to embrace the way of Christ. Right? The first point was sort of about stewardship. We're stewards. This point is all about you're a servant. You're a servant just like Jesus was a servant. And we need to embrace that. Look at verses 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Oh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I hope you catch Paul's sarcasm. The Corinthians have embraced the idea that I can have salvation without suffering. I can be saved, I can be going to heaven, and I can have everything I want in this world as well. He quotes their idea, right? Already you have all you want. You've arrived. You're Christians and you're rich. You're reigning like kings. You know, there, there's that temptation. I think every age faces it. Like, I want to be a Christian but I also want everything that the world has to offer at the same time. If you're a teen or a young adult, you think, I want to be a Christian, but I also still want to be cool. Like, I don't want people to think I'm weird. It's like, yeah, so I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'm going to vape on Monday at school. Or adults, we think the same way. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I also want to be successful. Like, I don't want to serve people. I still want the white picket fence and the boat and then go away on weekends and everything else. And we think that that's the good life, that I can be saved and I can have everything I want in this life as well. And that's what the Corinthians thought they were doing. We have it all. We've arrived. It's like the, the apostles, they're suffering. We've figured it out. We can be Christians and we can be influential and powerful and rich and reign. And Paul's challenging them, is that the good life? Is that what you want? Well, yeah, I mean, I want, I want to be saved, but I don't want my life to change. Paul says, hey, I wish you were reigning. Then, you, then we could reign with you. That would be great. Bring us along for the ride. You know, it was without us that you became king, so just, hey, could you help us out? 
But Paul says, no, no, actually God has very different plans for us as his apostles, as his servants. Look at verse 9. What's God's design for his people's place in society? I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. I mean, Paul is using scathing irony to point out how backwards the Corinthians' thinking is. Paul's saying, you guys are like the kings, right? You're at the front of the parade. You're on the big float. Everybody's praising you. Who are we? We're like the guys chained up in the back. We're the conquered foes, and we're just going in the back. Or you're like the, in the gladiatorial games, right? Think of that movie Gladiator. You're in the press box. You're drinking. You're having fun with your friends. Who are we? We're the guys that they throw out to the lions, and we're ripped limb from limb. You think the good life's being up there while God's servants are being torn to pieces by lions. So which is it? Which is the good life? Being in the press box or being in the arena chased by lions? And I think Paul's saying we actually have the good life as last of all, men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world. What do those phrases remind you of? Last of all, Mark 9.35, whoever desires to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Paul says, we're men sentenced to death. Who does that sound like? Mark 10.45, Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, we already talked about, he became obedient to the point of death. He was a man sentenced to die. He's a spectacle to the world. Romans 3.25 says, God put Jesus forward. He put him on a poster. He put him on a placard. This is your atoning sacrifice for your sins by his blood. He displayed Jesus on the cross as a spectacle to the world. Paul says that's what we're like. And so he presents this series of contrasts to sort of, again, kind of ratchet up this irony. Verse 10, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you, oh, you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. In the world's eyes, the apostles are fools. You don't care about your reputation. You serve people that don't deserve it. Like, you're a fool. Why would you do that? You don't retaliate when you're wronged? You forgive? You're weak. You're dishonored. Not the Corinthians. They're wise. Oh, look at us. We're worthy of respect. We're worthy of honor. We're strong. We don't let people take advantage of advantage of us. We're, we can accomplish anything we set our minds to. We're strong. We're honored. Look at Paul's current conditions, verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul will go on to talk about, he'll boast about all his 
accolades, right? These are Paul's credentials that he's boasting in. Not my degrees, not the praise of men. Here are the things that I'm hanging on my wall, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, what are my accomplishments? Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I've got it all! That's what Paul's saying. These are my credentials. This is the good life. All of these things is the good life. Look back at 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. What do we do when people try to harm us? We do good to them. What do we do when people persecute us? We keep going. We don't give up. What do we do when people lie about us and tear us down and say terrible things about us? We entreat them. We beg them to be reconciled to Christ. If the world were to look at us, they would say, these people are the scum of the earth. They're the refuse of all things. I mean, you're like the food that gets scraped off the plate before you put it in the dishwasher. You're like the floor of the movie theater. It's like sticky and disgusting. That's who you are. That's what your life looks like. And if you were to ask Paul, how do you feel about that, Paul? I think he would say, I wouldn't want it any other way. Because I'm following in the footsteps of my Savior. And that's what I want more than anything. I mean, who do these things sound like, this description that he gives in this chapter? It's Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I mean, he knew grief like you know your best friend. That's how close he was to grief. He was dishonored, not valued, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, slandered. And what did it say about Jesus' life? For the joy set before him, he endured, that was the good life. When he came to those prayers in the garden, what should I say? Father, take these things away from me? No way. This is why I came. I didn't come for honor. I didn't come for praise. I didn't come to have all the world's riches. He could have. He could have come and demanded all those things. He could have come and wiped us all off the face of the earth. It would have been perfectly just and right for him to do that. He said, that's not why I came. I came to be pierced. I came to be stomped on. I came to be crushed so that you could be forgiven. 
I came to go to the cross so that you could find reconciliation with God. Who are we to think we deserve anything different? Who are we to want anything different? Why would we want something different than that? If we love him, if we love what he did for us, why would we not want to live the life that he lived? That's what Paul's saying. That's the good life. I haven't lost anything. I've gained everything in Christ. I count it a joy to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. That when I'm being reviled, when I'm being slandered, and I'm being persecuted, I feel close to my Savior. Because I know he went through the same thing. And that's what I want. That's the good life. Embracing the way of Christ. Not, I want to be saved, and I want to be rich. No. I want to be saved, and I want to live like my Savior lived. So he's asking the Corinthians, so why are you still running after riches? Why do you still care about your reputation? Why do you want what the world wants? Don't you love your Savior? Live like Him. We need to embrace this way of life. It's what God calls us to. I mean, look back at verse 9. Catch this. Look who did this. Why is Paul in all these different situations that he's in? Look at verse 9. God has exhibited us. Why are they suffering? Because God put them on display. It's not an accident. The situations that you're in, when you're reviled, when you're persecuted, when you're slandered, Paul says, God is putting you on display. It's the word for theater that he's using. It's like, you're, I'm going to put you on the stage and I'm going to have people slander you and persecute you and revile you. And how are you going to, what are you going to do? I'm going to live like my Savior. And when they revile me, I'm going to bless them. And when they persecute me, I'm going to endure. And when they slander me, I'm going to beg them to be reconciled to Christ. God is putting you on display in those situations. Putting you on the stage so that other people can see Christ. Where else are they going to see it? Where else are they going to see how Christ would respond unless God's people are put in the very same situations that Christ was in? Now think about this, right? Think about if you're married. What do we default to in marriage? Well, I'll love you if you love me. Maybe you got married. You say like, well, when we got married, my spouse loved me. They did things for me. They came to church. I mean, they even helped with their kids. But they don't do that anymore. They don't do anything special for me. When they do talk to me, it's just short, and every, all their words, it just has an edge to them. I have essentially to raise these kids on my own. Why would I love this person who treats me like that? Because it's the way that Jesus loved you. Not because you deserved it, but because he wanted to show you a love that's unlike the world's love. When you're in those situations, when maybe even it's your spouse that's doing these things to you, think God is putting me on the stage. And he wants me to bless when they revile and endure when they persecute and entreat when they slander. 
And you're going to be a display of the love of Christ to the world around you. Your spouse is going to see it. They're going to think, why does this person love me? They might never say that, but in their heart of hearts, they know I'm not doing anything worthy of love, and yet they're loving me anyway. Your kids will see that. Why is mom loving this guy? I mean, he is a deadbeat. He's not doing anything. Why does she love him? Well, she doesn't do it because he deserves it. She does it because that's the way that Jesus loves her. Neighbors might even say, why does this woman put up with this guy? I hear the fights. And yet I can also see that she's still kind to him and still loves him. What's, they might think, what's wrong with this situation? Well, she's loving like Christ, not like the world. And you might think, like, well, why am I in this family? You know, I got parents, you know, siblings. They revile me. They persecute me. They slander me. And how do we respond? We need boundaries. Is that what Paul's saying here? When reviled, set up boundaries. When persecuted, make sure you have good boundaries. When slandered, got to have some boundaries. No. What does he say? When reviled, bless. When persecuted, endure. When slandered, entreat. You don't set up boundaries. You love them because, even though they don't deserve it because that's the way that Jesus loves you. Or you're at work. Boss takes credit for my work. My coworkers, they're always throwing me under the bus. I deserve justice. This isn't fair. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a couple chapters ahead. This is where Christians are suing each other because they're obsessed with what's fair what's right, that I'm getting what I deserve, that you're paying for the wrong that you did to me. What does Paul say in verse 7? To even have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Here's an idea. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? You say, if, if you are so, why are you so obsessed with justice? like God forgave you in Christ you did nothing so how about you just suffer wrong and you don't make someone pay for it how about you just let yourself be defrauded did Jesus allow that to happen to himself I think so so Paul's saying why can't you why are you so obsessed with your rights with being served about getting what's due that's not Jesus. The good life is not about people serving you. It's about serving others. Even those that don't deserve it, maybe especially those that don't deserve it, because that's the way that Jesus loves you. That's the good life. Again, Paul, no one is twisting Paul's arm to get him to live like this. He's not having to be convinced that this is the good life. No, I know this is the good life. I find it of surpassing value to know Christ. And I want to even suffer like him. That's how much I want to know my Savior, as I want to suffer like he suffered, because it means I would know him in a deeper way. And that's what he's calling us to do. Embrace it. 
That is the good life. When you can love someone and bless someone and entreat someone that's doing you wrong, that's the good life. So embrace the way of Christ. You know, the last element of the good life that we often think is that people tell us how great we are. But Paul says, no, we actually need to be willing to be corrected with loving correction. Look at verse 14. Again, Paul's written some hard things. Look at verse 14. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's Paul's motivation in all this? He loves them. Like, I'm not pointing out your pride and the fact that you want this and that you're going to go beyond what is written. I don't point those things out to wag my finger and say, shame, shame, shame. I point these things out because I love you. And you're going the wrong way. The things you think you're going to get by going beyond God's word, they're not good. They're going to do you more harm than good. When you think that you can change the gospel so that you get forgiveness and you can still be rich and get health and wealth in your best life now, I'm not just pointing that out to say you're wrong, bad, bad, bad. I'm doing it because I love you. I actually want you to experience the good life. I'm like a father. You're my children. I know what's best. Don't be the teenager who thinks, oh, dad, he just doesn't know anything. No, I know. Follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. My goal is not to make you feel bad. It's to admonish you as children. You know, if you decide to go beyond what is written, your life is going to get worse, not better. And he's telling you like a dad. Like, I know that you think that you can, you know, do whatever with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You'll be fine. And I don't, but I don't say that to wag my finger at you. I say it because I love you, and I want what's best for you. If you decide to seek worldly success, fame, reputation, your life is going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And so respond to this loving admonition. You know, as a side note, as Christians, we need to be willing to admonish as well as be admonished. You know, you might be perceived as mean, right? I mean, someone could read this. The Corinthians could read this thing. Paul's so mean. It's like, he's not mean. <laughs> he loves them. Sometimes we have to be willing to be thought mean to tell someone the truth. Right? If your child is playing in the street and they don't see the car coming, let them think you're mean when you yell at them to get out of the street. Let them think you're mean when you grab them by the arm and yank them to the sidewalk. If it means you're going to save your kid's life, let them think you're mean. The goal is not that they would not think you're mean, that they think you're the cool dad or the cool mom. The goal is that you would actually do what's best for your child. And we need to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ. Be willing to be thought mean, to confront, lovingly confront a brother or sister in sin. Now, don't be mean, right? Check yourself. Make sure that you are actually motivated by love. 
that you're not just railing away at people in the culture just because you're a jerk and you're upset with the culture. You know, I could say a statement in a sermon like, oh, this culture is so messed up, and you might have people say like, amen. It's like, but hold on. Where is that coming from? Is that coming from a place of love? Or is that just coming from a place of pride? We think, yeah, the culture is so messed up. They don't know what they're doing. And we need to be asked like Paul, like, what do you have that you didn't receive? What's the reason you're not a part of the culture right now? God was gracious. So how should we respond to the culture? When reviled, boycott. No, I think Paul says bless. When persecuted, move to another state. No, endure. When slandered, file a lawsuit. No, entreat. We respond out of love. We don't respond out of justice. We don't just want pure justice, do what's right, you're doing what's wrong, shame on you. No, we want to love the culture. We want to actually imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. That's what he says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Be like me as I'm like Christ. And what did Paul just describe his life like? Imitate me, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Imitate me. That's actually the good life if you imitate him. Paul goes on, verse 18. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is Paul's way of saying talk is cheap. All these people telling you, change the message. You don't have to suffer. Be a Christian and be rich. Be a Christian and be successful in the world's eyes. Saying, yeah, I mean, they can talk all they want, but where's the power? What do they do when they're slandered? What do they do when they're reviled? What do they do when they're persecuted? That's what I want to see. I don't care what they say. How do they live? Do they live like Jesus? Verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul's saying there's one of two ways we can do this. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. I want to do it the easy way. I'm telling you these things as a father who loves you, and I want you to receive it and be humble and stop going beyond what is written and stop seeking worldly success and humble yourself and serve like Jesus. That's what I want. I want to come and you say, you're right, let's do this. We'll walk together arm in arm in love, serving like Christ. But if you don't want to do that, I'm also willing to come with the rod. And that's what God is offering to you right now. Do you want God to come with the rod in your life? Or do you want him to come with a spirit of gentleness and love as you humble yourself and say, I want to stop going beyond what is written. 
I want to stop looking for health and wealth and my best life now. I want to start living like Christ. God is so gracious that he even gives us the opportunity to choose between those two things. He's going to get his way in the end, right? Either through you humbling yourself right now or through him bringing a rod in your life. So which do you want? Respond to the goodness of God. Humble yourself. Stop going beyond what is written. Stop making life about you. See beauty in the way that Christ lived his life and desire to live like him. And God will come in a spirit of gentleness and empower you and strengthen you and give you joy and purpose and meaning as you seek to live like Jesus. Or he can come with the rod and he can beat the pride out of you. And I think we've all experienced that to varying degrees. And we'd probably all turn to each other and say, just humble yourself. And so do that today. Humble yourself. Serve like Christ. You know, a friend of mine, uh, he shared a gardening example that he had. He was out working on his lawn uh, one afternoon. And a neighbor came up to him and he said, you see that weed right there in the corner? There's only one of them. He said, if you don't get a hold of that weed, it's going to take over your whole lawn. He says, I've been fighting those things, you know, for the last 20 years in my lawn. And my friend said, that was such a beautiful picture of loving correction and admonishment, right? I see something in your life that it's going to take over if you don't deal with it. And I've actually, in humility, they share, I've actually been dealing with the very same thing for the last 20 years. And I'm coming alongside you to help you get rid of this. Stop going beyond what is written. I see a tendency in you that when you're in this situation, you want to do this. That'll ruin your life. Don't do it. Come back. I see a tendency in you when you're wronged, your first instinct is justice. That'll take over your life. It'll make you bitter and resentful. Deal with it. And we should, that's how we should be with each other. We should be those that can give that kind of admonishment, and we should be those that receive that kind of admonishment. That's the good life. Not being told how great you are all the time, but by someone who loves you enough to tell you something hard. So let's enjoy the good life together. Let's put ourselves under the word of God. Let's embrace the way of Christ, and let's be willing to lovingly confront each other when we see sin. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you're so gentle with us. You give us this word so that we can see our hearts. We can see the pride in our heart, that we want justice, we want fairness, we want respect, we want honor. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's in our marriage, maybe it's at church. Lord, those things will take over our lives and they'll make us inefficient, ineffective for you and your sake and your kingdom. And you're so gentle with us to give us the scripture so that you bring these things out and that you don't have to come with a rod when you show these things to us and you allow us to respond in humility. So help us. Help us to receive this. To say, I don't want to go beyond what is written. I don't want to demand to be served. I want to live like Jesus. And help us to believe that that actually is the good life 
we'll find more joy, more happiness, abundant joy, overflowing joy, and your presence is fullness of joy. And when we decide to humble ourselves, let you be God, and we be your humble servants and mere stewards of your truth, that we're not trying to create truth, modify truth, anything like that. We're just receiving your truth. That's a life of joy. That's the good life. Help us to believe that. Pray that we'd respond today, that you wouldn't have to bring the rod in our lives to correct us, to discipline us, but that we would with joy respond. And help us to believe there might be situations, maybe even this afternoon, maybe this week, maybe this month, when we're reviled. Would your spirit remind us that when we're reviled, we're on stage. You're exhibiting us May we respond with blessing and not cursing. If we feel persecuted this week, maybe even today, that you'd remind us that we're on your stage and you've put us there. You've put us there. You've you've allowed us to be persecuted and you want to display Christ as we endure. We're in a situation later when we're slandered and our flesh says, retaliate, fight back, don't let this happen that we'd be reminded that you've put us on stage and you want us to exhibit the character of your son. We can't do it in our own strength, Lord. Would you help us? Fill us with your spirit. Give us a love for Christ. Give us a desire that in this life, like Paul, we would want nothing more than to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ if it means that other people would know you. That's a work that only you can do in our hearts. We pray that you would. Use us. May we happily be the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. If it means that more people are going to know Christ and more people are going to give you the worship that you deserve. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.